hope you all are doing well tonight. Welcome to Praxis. If this is your first time or you've been coming for weeks, months, years on end, it is good to be able to gather around God's Word. As a group, we've been studying the book of Romans, and that's what we're going to do. We're going to keep on pace and continue our schedule by looking at Romans chapter 7. So if you have your copy of God's Word, I invite you to crack them open, turn, into, turn to chapter 7. We'll be looking at verses 1 to 6 tonight. Romans 7, verses 1 to 6. I'll go ahead and read our passage, and then we'll pray for the Lord's blessing and help upon our time. Romans chapter 7, beginning verse 1. This is the word of God. Or do you not know, brothers, for I'm speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives? For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives, but if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies, she is freed from the law, and if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. Verse 4. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. Let's pray. God, bless your word. May it go forth and not return void. May it conquer stubborn hearts. May it rapture distracted minds. Father, we know even as we've read, this passage is, can come off a bit stale or sophisticated, perhaps even a bit abstract. But we pray that by your Spirit, you'd open the eyes of our hearts to behold the wonders of the gospel, how the good news of Christ has an impact on how we view commands, how we live that we do not operate by mere duty or rule-keeping, but we are compelled and controlled by your Holy Spirit to live in a way that is pleasing in your sight because we are united with Christ. So use this passage, use your word to nourish your people that they might be built up and strengthened to be faithful to you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I'm going to start with some pop trivia. I want you to see if you can identify where this opening theme song comes from. It starts off like this. Bad boys, bad boys, what you going to do, what you going to do when they come for you? You guys familiar with what that is the opening theme song to? Coughs. Wow, I'm, I'm, I am impressed that you guys are even aware of that show. But for those who are less informed, not as cultured, uh, Coughs is a reality TV show that follows police officers and sheriff deputies as they patrol various neighborhoods. You know, they'll answer calls for service 
and sometimes they will have to go after the bad boys. Um, if you've seen this show, uh, what's crazy is they're still coming out with new episodes today. And so this TV program has been on air for more than 30 years, and that's older than probably most of you in this room, you know, older than me, too, maybe. Um, but I remember when I was a little kid, uh, my parents wouldn't let me watch this show, but sometimes when I sneaked, and uh, on, on a few rare occasions, I was able to catch um, a few clips. Uh, whenever I watched the show, it left a clear impression upon me. You know, everyone had to abide by the law. It didn't matter if you were the president or just a common citizen. It was how the city stayed safe. It was how you avoid being arrested. It was how you could go on with your life being happy. So I learned early on, I didn't want to be a bad boy. The law was universal, legally binding for every single individual. Well, from this lame duck intro, I think you can gather where we're going to study tonight. Because in Romans 7, the Apostle Paul focuses his attention on the law. And so he sets out to discuss how the Christian is to view, understand, and relate to the law. We've caught snapshots of this in the past. You know, in prior chapters, Paul has touched on this issue. All the way back in chapter 1, Paul masterfully argues how under the law, we're all culpable for suppressing the truth. We're sinners, we're guilty, whether in our ignorance or by our hypocrisy, we've exchanged the truth of God to worship ourselves. And the law exposes we're all bad boys and bad girls, guilty, worthy of divine condemnation. But this opens the way, sets the stage for justification by faith, which is Paul's grand thesis for the book of Romans. We discover, much to our surprise, that we can be declared righteous apart from the law. How? By faith. By repenting of our sin and trusting in Jesus Christ, his life, death, and resurrection. That through our union with the Son of God, we are made dead to sin and alive to God. And that's the gospel in a nutshell. But a lingering question still remains. If this good news be true, how does the law then fit into the believer's life? Well, in chapter 7, Paul sets out to explore this topic. The word law or commandment occurs 29 times, 29 times in these 25 verses. So it's safe to say this is the central theme Paul takes up and addresses. Our passage tonight is really the introduction for this subject matter. Paul begins to unpack a proper understanding of the Christian and the law. And we'll work our way through the passage. We're going to hang our thoughts on three basic pegs. It's there in your little bulletins for note-taking. But to reiterate, we'll first see the principle stated in verse 1, the principle illustrated in verses 2 and 3, 
And then finally, the principle applied in verses 4 to 6. Uh, just a quick disclaimer before we get going. The first two points are really short. So don't get too excited and start celebrating because uh, by the time we reach point three, you think we're breezing through, we're almost at the end. Uh, we're not. So you've been warned, okay? Now, first, the principle stated, our first point, the principle stated. Uh, just to back up a little, we have to remember where we are in the book of Romans. Last week, Paul wrapped up Romans 6 with verse 23. He announces, for the wages of sin is death, but, so it's the pivot, the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. So two contrasts, wages of sin results in death, free gift of God is eternal life, that you are alive by being united with Christ. A blatant line in the sand, that those who are in Christ have been transformed. The trajectory, the direction of their lives is set on a far different path. They are dead to sin and alive to God, not the other way around. And Paul transitions now to bolster this claim by showing how the Christian then relates to the law. Look again at verse 1. He says, Or do you not know, brothers, for I am speaking to those who know the law, that the law is binding on a person only as long as he lives. Now, what law first is Paul referring to? You know, I believe it would seem that it would be the law of Moses, the Mosaic law given to the nation of Israel back in the Old Testament. Certainly, we see that the apostle has this in mind because he's already alluded to it in prior chapters. Back in Romans 5, he talks about death reigning from Adam to Moses before the law was finally given, which logically we can deduce that means when Moses arrives on scene, there's now this law. Furthermore, we find Paul quoting the 10th commandment later on in Romans 7.7, 7, when he says, you shall not covet. So taking all the data together, the law Paul is probably talking about is the Mosaic law. Now, why is this significant? Because Paul is not elaborating on some abstract, ambiguous idea, something foreign to his readers. No, he's speaking to people who knew, studied, memorized, and breathed the law. These people were experts, scholars, well aware of what it stipulated and how important it was to obey. After all, this law has another name, the Mosaic covenant, a covenant, a binding contract, an undertaking that required the people's compliance. It was central to the Jewish way of living. And every Jew and Gentile knew this. It's kind of like how we today, thousands of years later in 2021, we are still familiar with the Ten Commandments. In fact, many of you can probably recite it by heart. Well, Paul's audience knew the Mosaic Law. They understood its demands, how inescapable, how comprehensive it was. The only way out, the only exemption, death. Death. Paul states the principle, 
Everyone acknowledges that laws are only in effect as long as someone's alive. You know, even if we were able to finally identify Jack the Ripper, he never answered for his killing unless he has some magic potion because by now he'd be over 150 years old, long deceased. Lee Harvey Oswald could never be tried for assassinating JFK because he too was murdered before being put on trial. And it's why people have turned the gun on themselves instead of facing the consequences of their crimes. Because they get it, they understand. The law has no power when there is no life. Paul provides his own illustration. We move to our second point. The principle illustrated. So first, Paul just states the principle, and now he's going to illustrate it. Our second point, the principle illustrated. And pick up again in verse 2. For a married woman is bound by law to her husband while he lives. But if her husband dies, she is released from the law of marriage. Accordingly, she will be called an adulteress if she lives with another man while her husband is alive. But if her husband dies... She is free from that law. And if she marries another man, she is not an adulteress. I do want to preface that all analogies are precisely that. Analogies. Which means as helpful as illustrations can be, they are limited. They're limited. I mean, we need to recognize that Paul is trying to convey a spiritual truth. He is attempting to describe, to communicate how a believer dies and yet continues to live, which seems like a contradiction. So let's admit, right out the gate, let's put our cards down. There's no perfect analogy. Not everything will line up. Not everything will match up. Don't get too pedantic and say, well, the wife is freed when the husband dies, So the parallel doesn't fit when Paul later on says, we are freed, but yet at the same time, we also are the ones who have died. My response, you need to calm down, right? (laughs) All illustrations fall apart at some juncture, at some point. But the main point is to grasp what the illustration is emphasizing. And Paul chooses marriage as his powerful illustration. Now, the intimate commitment, the union between a husband and a wife is intact so long as both of them are alive. We hear all the time at weddings, in the marriage vows. You know, people may choose to put their own lovey-dovey spin and write their own vows, but there's one principle always present, one sentiment clearly expressed Till death do us part. Now, adultery is defined back then in present day as unfaithfulness in marriage because your spouse is what? Your spouse is living. No one condemns and calls a woman adulteress if she's single or a widow. No, adultery is only possible if the spouse exists. Otherwise, there's no one to sin against. But if a husband's, or if a wife's husband is deceased, 
She's released from her marital obligation. I mean, who's she going to be a wife to? You see, it all comes down to this. One's marital status of faithful wife or unfaithful adulteress hinges on whether a death has occurred. Uh, My wife, Barry, has asked me before, you know, hey, if you die, would you be cool if I remarried? And early on in our marriage, when I was obtuse, I still sometimes am obtuse, but I would reply, yeah, what do I care? I'm dead, right? That was a bad answer. (laughs) I I was dumb, okay? I've since repented and learned to frame it better. You know, bear, if I die, um, don't worry about me. You know, uh, I think it would be a good thing for you not to be alone. So uh, if you got married again, that'd be okay. But now she follows it up with another question. She now asks, Alan, if I die, would you remarry? Friends, this is what we call a trap, okay? There is no right answer except yelling a loud no, celibacy for life. But Paul's point here is pretty obvious. The principle he's illustrating is not difficult to understand, right? But I think we often miss something. We need to think more deeply. There is a reason the apostle particularly chooses this analogy. Why adultery? Why marriage? For all intents and purposes, Paul could have communicated his point with a different illustration, right? I mean, I could get the job done by simply stating, you only pay your state income tax as long as you reside in California. Otherwise, it's tax evasion. But guess what? Once you die, you're released. You're no longer obligated to pay taxes. Bam, message delivered just as effectively. Paul could have done something similar, but it doesn't have the same punch. It doesn't carry the same gravity. You see, marriage is selected by Paul because it's special, sacred even. In fact, we know earthly marriage, according to the Bible, is designed by God to uniquely capture, portray, and illustrate a greater marriage, a heavenly one, the eternal bond between Christ and his bride, his people, the church. And this is key to keep in mind. Because in being released from the law, we aren't merely being subjected to a different set of rules. The exchange and transition is not equivalent like for like. We don't abandon one code of ethics just to merely adopt another. We enter into a relationship with the living Son of God. A marriage, beloved. A marriage so magnificent a union so profound, it changes everything, including us. So let me ask, since Paul uses such a poignant, such a vivid, intimate illustration, praxis, is that how you view your walk with the Lord? Is that how you see Jesus Christ? Is this your opinion of what it means to be a believer, a Christian? 
not rote rules, not a creed to adhere to so you can call yourself a Christian before others. No, but to know and be known by Jesus Christ. Or is it still only law to you? You know, it's one thing to try to earn your salvation. It's another to enjoy it when it's given to you. And this is where Paul pumps the brakes, what he camps out on. He slows us down to connect the dots. Having established this case, stating and illustrating the principle, Paul moves very slowly to extract all the wonderful ramifications of this reality. Our third and final point, the principle applied. The principle applied. Look at verse 4. He says, likewise, so now he's bringing all the pieces together. He's pulling his illustration and now showing it how it relates with me and you. So likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead in order that we may bear fruit for God. We need to preface. The law has a particular purpose. Uh, Modern-day parallel, just think of speed limit signs. You know, those signs can't make you a good or a bad driver. They only inform you, right? They only tell you whether you're breaking the law or keeping it. Or take an echocardiogram. Those things can't treat your heart murmur. It can only show you that you have one. Well, the law functions in a similar fashion. The law tells us what is right and what is wrong, what is permitted by God and what is prohibited. But it can't make us righteous. And the danger is when we try to make the law do something God never intended it to do. The aim was never to nurture this rigid and perfect law-keeping in his people, but to reveal, to expose, to make manifest our law-breaking. Which is why any attempt, any system where we are trying to work for our righteousness is plain foolishness. It goes directly against what God desires. Don't attempt to use the law as a ladder to God when he means it as a mirror for our hearts. In verse 4, Paul shares a better way. He states unequivocally, when you become a Christian, guess what? When you become a Christian, you die to the law and any grounds for establishing your own credentials, your own worth, your righteousness. You jettison that strategy for something completely different. Forget climbing. Fix your eyes on Jesus Christ. By faith in him, union with Christ, the death he died, you died. And this idea of death is sweeping. You know, there's no such thing as being half dead or partially dead. And yet, curious enough, 
often we blend together this weird concoction for our salvation, where yes, we would affirm and acknowledge it's all about Jesus, but let me sprinkle in some of my own pieties to soothe my consciousness, to feel like I'm contributing as well. But the peril of doing this is we will waver. We will fail. The volatility of our devotion and deeds then causes our assurance to fluctuate. Sure, when we're keeping the law of what we think a good Christian should do, well, we're related, patting ourselves on the back, feeling particularly in step with God. But it's a double-edged sword. Because the very moment we falter, the occasions we stumble, then we question the genuineness of our faith and our standing before the Lord, because it is not solely rooted in Christ. Paul's solution pierces through the confusion and forces us away from straddling the line. Stop trying to combine your works with the work of Christ. Legalism and the liberty that Jesus affords, the two don't mix. It's one or the other. And Paul tells us straight up, in Christ, we've died to the law. What is dead is dead. It is conclusive, in total, absolute, final. Now, if you're clever, you might play devil's advocate. Okay, Paul. Well, if I die to the law, does this mean I can just do whatever I want? I'm under no obligation. If I'm released from its requirements, can I just indulge the flesh, gratify my sinful desires? But beloved, that line of thinking is faulty for two reasons. One, you're not liberated so you can have free reign to do whatever you want. Being freed from the law is only half of the story. The other half of the story is who you're freed for, who you're freed to. And we'll get to that point soon enough. Two, or secondly, such an attitude misses the purpose of the law. To quote John Calvin, he said, The release is not from the righteousness which is taught in the law, but hear this, it is from the rigid demands of the law and from the curse which follows from its demands. In other words, we're no longer condemned by the law. We're freed from trying to prove ourselves, from earning a right standing, but not righteous living. You see, the law teaches us about obedience, about righteousness. It gives us, in concrete terms, a picture of what a life pleasing to God might look like. But the conclusion to draw isn't, okay, all right, by my wits and my power, my self-discipline, I'm going to rise to the occasion. I'm going to meet the bar. No, the Christian isn't attempting to wear Christian clothes to follow Christian conduct, to fit into Christian environment, to gain acceptance from other Christians and approval from God. Yes, our lives should be drastically different, but as consequence, as a byproduct of our relationship with Jesus, not the basis for establishing one. You see that? That's the difference between root and fruit. Let me try to illustrate. When I think of my kids, 
you know, as a father, I'm not so systematic and structured to run through a daily list or quota, you know, must spend 30 minutes with child A and child B, you know, make sure to say two encouraging things to them before I go to bed or cook and buy breakfast, lunch, and dinner. And then I will have fulfilled my responsibilities. No, that's robotic. That's lifeless. I'm not primarily concerned with function. I'm not preoccupied with looking like their dad more than I am being their dad. See the difference? One is ruled by the letter of the law. The other by life. So here we are. We are not interested in stapling apples to this dry, withered tree to pretend and pass off ourselves as flourishing and well. No, we bear fruit as believers because that's what healthy trees naturally do. We've been planted in new soil. We are united with Christ. Or as Paul declares with words of intimacy, you are released from the law. Why? So that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead. And I love this. I love this. Rising from the dead, Christ will never die. This new husband brings about an entirely new marriage, one that will last forever. There will be no death do us part. As one pastor comments, this person we are joined to is alive. This is no list of commandments. This is no external slate of duties. This is a spiritual union with an all-glorious, all-providing, all-satisfying, ever-living person, more real than the person sitting next to you. We know the same bad company corrects good character, but the best company, the best company yields the greatest harvest. Union with Christ produces a certain result. As Paul mentions at the end of verse 4, in order that we may bear fruit for God. Now I want you to pause and consider. What comes to mind when you think of that? When you hear Christian fruit? If I had a guess, I would say Many of us define Christian living, godliness, fruitfulness by what we do, our actions. We equate fruit with our deeds. How many times I've shown up to church, what ministries I'm involved in, what TV shows do I refrain from watching? And listen, those may be helpful indicators, even good things to pursue and aspire for. But if we're only evaluating fruit, by what we do and don't do? Have we really died to the law? If that's the metric and atmosphere of our Christianity, isn't that just legalism dressed up in religious garments? Friends, a works-based righteousness that operates only by the rules, but not the Spirit of God. How does Paul define and measure fruit? By character, by Christ-likeness. And when that takes root in the heart, 
then all the proper actions, the righteous deeds, will flow forth and follow. Listen afresh to Galatians 5, 22 to 23. Probably the hallmark verses on the fruit of the Spirit. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. I didn't hear anything about doing particular things. But I did pick up on that last phrase, against such things there is no law. And that's interesting. Paul doesn't mean we're free to live without any restrictions. He's telling us those who are living by the Spirit don't have to obsess with crossing every T and dotting every I because such a life will be in accordance with what God wants. Now, these virtues are evidence of a Spirit-filled life, and these qualities cannot be manufactured by the law. It is a divine work. It is a package deal. They are the fruit, singular, of the Spirit. Praxis. Take inventory. Take stock of your life. How do you measure maturity? You know what's a better indicator than Bible reading streak, minutes in prayer, dollars donated? Simply this. Are you more like Jesus Christ today than you were a week, month, a year, a decade ago? You know, big whoop, if I read dense systematic theologies for fun, or if I am filling my calendar with all sorts of events, if my family is perplexed by my harshness and impatience. Who cares if I'm up to date on the latest Christian hymns, blogs, and lingo, if my very own words lack kindness, if there is no love, joy, peace. The decisive criterion is nothing esoteric, secret, or complicated. Just ask yourself, am I growing in resemblance to my Lord and Savior? Look, Paul is not speaking to us from an ivory tower. He's there with us in the trenches. In this verse, the apostle shifts from the second person pronoun, you, to the first person, we, because no one is excused. We're all encouraged to abide in Christ, to abound with fruit from the recent convert to the seasoned saint. This is our lifelong ambition. And thankfully, this is not something we endeavor on our own. In fact, Paul shows us the futility of going after it alone, reminding us of what happens when we are left to our own devices. Verse 5. For... So he's backtracking, rewinding the tape, recalling a past disposition. For while we were living in the flesh, our sinful passions aroused by the law were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. Now this can be a little puzzling. Uh, What is exactly going on? In in fact, you, you read this verse and it can be intriguing, even provocative. We skim it and we're quick to point the finger and blame shift. See here, the problem, according to Paul, is God's law. The law is actually guilty for bringing out the worst in me. Without it, my debased cravings 
wouldn't have been extracted, wouldn't have been demonstrated, wouldn't have manifested. And Paul will respond to this accusation in detail in the next week. But what is this all about? Sinful passion aroused by the law. Well, the apostle is stressing our natural bent. We don't start off in life neutral. It's not like we're birthed into this world with a clean state, like we have no propensity, and when the law is sprung upon us, we're innocent, and we're just inept at keeping the law. Now, Paul here is uncovering how far our depravity runs. We are more wicked and spoiled than we realize. And the law, well, the law helps outs us. The law is an x-ray for what's really going on inside. It is the canvas on which we paint our true colors. This is what happens when we're confronted with commandments. When we are charged to obey, we push back. We reveal our tight grip on autonomy. What it boils down to is simply this. You and I, you and I, we want to do the things we want to do. It's that instinctual. It's that basic. I'll prove it to you. Say I randomly came up to you. We have no prior relationship. I don't know you. You don't know me. Nothing in regard to socioeconomic status, career, season in life. No hidden agenda. Nothing that plays a factor into the conversation we're about to have. Just person to person. Equal. And in this hypothetical, in, in a completely sterile manner, without any malice, without any insinuation, I tell you, hey, go get me water. How will you respond? What's your immediate reaction? Get out of here, right? You probably frown or bristle. There'd at least be some sort of hesitancy. What has happened? Our pride swells. The first thought we're likely to have is, who do you think you are bossing me around? We don't like being told what to do. Our default setting is to play God, to be God. So whenever anyone intrudes or threatens our position of power, we're annoyed or flat-out defiant. I mean, why is it fun to break the law? Speeding, drinking underage, doing drugs. Sure, there's some adrenaline rush, maybe enjoying the recreation, but part of the experience, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, is certainly the power trip. The disregard of any authority because it strokes our ego to not have to answer to anyone. And the law stirs up our selfishness until it surfaces in resistance and rebellion. Go get me water. Get your own water. Don't tell me what to do. And so it is with God. Have no other gods before me. Honor your father and mother. Don't steal or lie. Our reflex, who do you think you are? Instructions insult us by assuming we are not in control, that we are not in the position of power, and that is offensive until it breaks us until the gospel breaks us, exposing our destitution, our sin streak, and in despair, being in control, being top dog is not all 
that we make it out to be. It's a burden we cannot bear. And so we relinquish any authority, cry out for a better Lord and Savior than ourselves. We tire of the burdens of law-keeping and the suffocating life of legalism, and we plead for grace. The grace of Jesus Christ. Paul ties the loose ends up in summary fashion, verse 6. He says, but now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. So here he's comparing and contrasting. Death, law, the old way, but now the new way. Life, Spirit, This is the transformative work of the gospel that we used to strive and strain to prove our worth only to disappoint ourselves and others. But the hope of the gospel is when we fail, the path back is not law, but love. We don't work more. We lean into Christ more. This is the new way, the new MO. This is where the Spirit always leads, pointing, directing us back to God and the glory of his grace. Isn't that what makes the parable of the prodigal son such a fan favorite, so compelling, so winsome? I mean, you have a son who breaks all the rules for being a good poster child. He abandons his family. He squanders his inheritance. He lives as a profligate. He breaks all the rules, and yet when he returns... He's not met with a list of demands and duties to atone for his betrayal, to win back his father's grace. Now, what is he met with? His father rushing forward. His father's open arms. His father's best robe and signet ring. Bring out the fattened calf. Celebrate because it is more than just keeping the law, but abiding in the father's love. Let's pray. God, we know, according to 1 Timothy, that the law is good if it is used lawfully. The law is prescribed and given not for the just, but to show how wretched we are, how we have rebelled, how we are all criminals committing high treason against you. And yet, Lord, that puts us in the proper position because when we are bankrupt in our sin, we need your generosity. We need your grace. We need the Son of God who frees us from the condemnation of law because we cannot uphold it. We cannot keep it. We can only break it. Inevitably, we all, all do. And yet, Lord, this is the way in which you humble us to cause us to gaze upward towards you, to see the beauty of Jesus Christ, that by repenting of our sins and placing our faith in him, we can be reconciled. We are united with him, and now we live in the newness of life, one that is characterized by your spirit, one that conforms us into the image of your son, one in which there is true joy and delight, not because we are freed to do whatever we want, but we are freed to live as you have designed in blissful communion with you, in love for you and for each other. Oh, teach us these truths. It's so easy to forget them, to stray away from the gospel, 
to return back to legalistic tendencies, but we pray that we'd be anchored in your Son, grounded in grace. We pray these things in Jesus' name.